We are going to be in 1 Samuel 18, but you can hold your place there. We're going to start in Psalm 51 this morning. So turn to Psalm 51 in your Bibles. This is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. As Corey was just sharing the gospel, when you sit with God as he confronts you and convicts you of something that's off in your life and off in the sense that you are missing his ideal in the moment, in an attitude, in an action. Here, Psalm 51 is David's song that he wrote in repentance when God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him concerning his sin with Bathsheba and adultery and murdering her husband Uriah. Incredibly deep psalm of repentance. There's a lot of theology in this psalm also, but we're going to jump in and we're just going to look at half of a verse that's going to help some of our context this morning, and that's Psalm 51, 17, which says, A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. The word for broken in the Hebrew literally means to be smashed, to be shattered, to have been burst a contrite heart is a crushed heart. So listen to David's word. A broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. How many of you have had a broken heart based on some external event? Anybody? Anybody uh, had a brother or sister in Christ do something to you that brought about brokenness, pain, anguish. David, in this context, he's talking about his own behaviors that brought about brokenness in his life, brokenness in the lives of others. And as he is turning to the Lord in repentance, his, he has been crushed internally. His own actions, his own words, his own failure in regards to knowing what the Lord had instructed him to do, his failure in that brought about this, this crushing internally. So as we sit with David in this idea of him having a heart after God, as defined in Samuel. In 1 Samuel 16, we have Samuel coming and anointing David as king. We watch the Holy Spirit come upon David. Um, we are watching him provide poetry and music that is flowing out of his relationship with the Lord as a worship leader to soothe the mad king Saul. We're told in 1 Samuel 16 that David, uh, that Saul loved David. And we're going to pick up on this word today also, but in Saul's love for David, it's what David was providing for Saul. It wasn't that David, or that Saul had a, um, a godly love and a reciprocal love in his relationship with David. He loved David because David provided him something as he was being agitated and distressed. In the chapter last week, the last couple weeks, we've looked at David's great triumph over the giant Goliath. We're watching him in his faith, in his victory in God, declare that God has delivered me historically, He's delivered me from whatever my enemies were in the moment. I know that he will deliver me today, that confidence. I know that he's going to deliver me in the future. As he's talking to Goliath, you are coming to me with all of your worldly armor and all of your mass and all of your might. I am coming to you in the name of the Lord. And we watch this moment of victory in David's life in in, um, in obedience, in submission to God, because ultimately David declared that this is not my battle, that this is the Lord's battle, and I'm going to do the Lord's battle with his strength, with his power. We've watched all this imagery, right? So as we've looked at David thus far, great man, yes? 
as a young man, we've watched, uh, you know, you can press into what are those life lessons that he learned as a young shepherd boy in isolation, being alone, turning to the Lord in worship, turning to the Lord in meditation, turning to the sling and practicing rock after rock after rock as he's out there bored with the sheep. But now as we continue to follow David's life, we're going to step into 20 years of David being crushed. Comfortable? Not at all. First Samuel 18, let's read through it. Got a lot to comment on this, as always. I always sit in this tension of, boy, I wish I could talk for two hours, and I can't. I'm always, uh, there's always so much more of God's word to study and teach uh, that we can do in this room. But I bring that up to say that, like as we watch the worship team, Jeremy and Amber selected the songs this morning. They've gathered together with the worship team. They've gone through, hey, this is the order of the song. Here's the key. Here's the chords. Going to rehearse it and practice it together. Worship team goes home. They're practicing on their own. They're doing their, you know, getting skilled at their own instruments. They come in here this morning as the body of Christ to, to do what they set to do right together in, in worship and leading us and all that kind of stuff. I use that as an example of, like this morning, God's, God's helped us choose what the text is. And I get a walk through the text this morning, and we're going to pull out the key, and we're going to pull out uh, the chords that you're going to be playing and those kinds of things. I only get to highlight the little, um, little nuggets. But it's your job to go home and practice with the Lord. There, this... The Word of God is tremendously rich and deep and insightful. We have so many lessons to learn out of the pages just in this singular chapter today that I could possibly cover. We're just going to highlight some of the nuggets. I'm focusing on the Word of committed today because we're going to watch three men. So Jonathan, Saul, and David and how they are committed and who are their what they're committed to, who they're committed to, and I'm going to make it real easy. You are either committed to your creator or you are committed to yourself. All other relationships and all the other nuances that play out from different commitments in our life are founded on those two different ideas. You are either committed to your creator or your attention and your commitment is to yourself, your success, your ego, your glory, which is what Saul represents. Jonathan and David clearly are representing that they are committed to the Lord, and we'll watch this play out. All right, let's read through chapter 18. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit, and this is the word committed, was committed to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the, wom that the, women, who, the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. 
And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought that my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I? What is my life for my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told, told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines. That's lovely. To take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought back their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually, literally all the days. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became greatly esteemed. All right, back up here to the beginning. We are going to press in to Jonathan, then Saul, then David as we pick apart the text. So there in verse 1, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit, was committed to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They make this covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And then you have Jonathan giving to David these, these articles of royalty is the imagery. So beginning first, we live in a culture that loves to twist the word of God into their own ideas and into their own buckets. This word for love, it's already been used in context that Saul loved David greatly. Here, Jonathan loves David as his own soul. In this text, it says that all Israel and all Judah loved David, that Saul's servants loved David, that Michael loved David. So the context gives you the, the definition and the type of love that's being described. This is not sexual love that many in our culture would attempt to place on Jonathan's and David's relationship. That is not true whatsoever. This word has the idea of care. 
It has the idea of affection, liking, loving. Best example in the Word of God is the disciples' relationship to Jesus. So we looked at last week, Jesus' temptation by the devil there in Matthew chapter 4. At the end of that scene, it steps into Jesus and his public ministry and his proclamation of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then immediately after that, you watch Jesus go and call Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me, I will make you fishers of men is what they declare. Now, what is it about Jesus in the flesh as a rabbi? as a teacher, as a miracle worker, that the souls of Peter and Andrew and James and John were attracted to leave their nets, to leave their business, James and John, to leave their father and mother and go and follow Jesus Christ. What was it? Curiosity? I don't think so. We don't don't have the details of their prior interactions with Jesus, but we know that there were more inner and earlier interactions than this initial call of, hey guys, come follow me. It wasn't just a random thing. There was a spiritual attraction between the disciples and Jesus. You follow Jesus Christ. You have responded to the gospel because there is a spiritual attraction there. There is a love. There is a like. There is a care. There is an attention any of you ever just fallen in love, like attraction to a brother or sister in Christ as a leader in your life? Anybody? Any of you have any spiritual heroes? I, I got a ton. I, I, have, I have men that I listen to that they, they've never met me. I've never met them. And I love their heart for the Lord. I'm attracted to the way they teach. I'm attracted to the way they communicate. I pray for them. I like them, Lord. Keep them from ever falling and failing in any sense whatsoever. That is the definition of the love between Jonathan and David. There is something in David that is Jonathan has witnessed David. Witnessed him come into his father's inner circle to play music to calm down his agitated dad. Witnessing David, David's not only his words towards Saul, but actually going in action in that victory with Goliath. He's in that council as as Saul is querying David, like, whose son are you? And watching his dad take David into his service and retention in a way you can't go home anymore. There's something about David that has captured Jonathan's heart. And this, honestly, it, it, the only, the, the true weight to place upon why in Jonathan's life is what the Holy Spirit was doing in Jonathan's mind and his heart towards David. Because what Jonathan does, it's, it's insane. In his commitment to David, what Jonathan is doing, Jonathan is the crown prince. We just had... Queen Elizabeth died in England. Prince Charles was the crown prince. When mom died, who became king? Charles. When Charles dies, who's going to become king in England? William. William today is the crown prince. In this context, Jonathan is the crown prince. And forget Saul's failures. Just think about his successes. He was anointed by the prophet of God. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul. He prophesied among the prophets. He went out and did battle. He has created a unity in Israel that has not existed prior to his kingship. And Jonathan, in his soul, loving and being knit and committed to David, he is willingly taking off his garments of royalty and giving them to the man he knows that God has called to be king. This is the attitude that the gospel demands of us towards Jesus Christ. We have all kinds of position and authority in life, some things that have been given to us, some things that we have taken to ourselves, but in this coming in humility and with nothing, there, there is a removal willfully of surrendering all to the one that you know has been appointed king for all eternity. 
that is what Jonathan is doing. He removes his robe. His, and this is, again, this is going to be a robe that identifies him as the crown prince. He's removing his armor, and it's not armor that's going to fit David because they're of the same size. All of this is imagery in regards to his position of, as crown prince, and he is willfully removing all of these identifying factors and giving them to the man that he knows that God has appointed as king this early on in David's life. Who is Jonathan committed to? David? Yahweh. Jonathan loves his dad. Jonathan dies with his dad in battle. Jonathan does everything that he can to honor his father and to honor his king all the days of his life. And he does a good job at it. But he willfully surrenders all this worldly glory to submit and to be committed to the will of God, not only in his life, but in David's life. Jonathan knows that the Holy Spirit has been removed from his dad. Jonathan knows that the kingdom has been stripped away from his dad and has been given to another. Jonathan is choosing not to be like his dad, but he's choosing to be committed to God. And this, this friendship that Jonathan and David have, it's because both of these men have a heart for God. Feel that through the entire text. We're going to watch Jonathan continually be, John, uh, be David's protector, to be there to stand in the gap for him, to help him escape the wrath of his dad. At the same time, honor his father as unto the Lord. But when his dad is being disobedient to God, he chooses to remain committed to God rather than committed to his dad. Now Saul, we've watched Saul multiple times be lifted up and exalted. We watched some of his successes and we've watched him slowly slide away from the Lord. And again, in this, in this, um, in this picture, we watch his insanity and his madness and his commitment to himself just take deeper roots and produce its fruit. So in this, we have one in the immediate prior section where David is victorious over Goliath. Saul has committed a daughter to whoever kills this champion of the Philistines. So that's what this questioning and querying is at the, at the end of chapter 17. Beginning of 18, we have here again, Saul in his authority takes David permanently, no longer allows him to go to his own house. We're told that David is continually behaving wisely. This means that he is successful, that he is prospering in all of his actions in, in relation to Saul, in relation to the nation of Israel. David's being accepted. But it's this whole scene, as, and you got to picture the, the gore of it, because David still has Goliath's head in his hand, in a bag, whatever this looks like, as they're coming back from the battlefield and going towards Jerusalem, ultimately towards Gibeah, where Saul's hometown is. As they're going from community to community, we're told that the women are coming out to celebrate the victorious army. Again, in, in armies, even in today's leadership, who, get, who gets all the credit? The leader gets all the credit, right? Even though the soldiers did all the work, the leader's the one that gets the credit. The leader's the one who is getting exalted. So here are the women of Israel coming out community by community along the road. They're celebrating the victory of the nation of Israel, and they're proclaiming that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, that is Hebrew poetry, and all it is is parallelism. It's not attributing to David greater kills than Saul. It's parallelism. It's, it's just 
numbers in, in poetry. It's not to be literally, and Saul takes it literally, that they're ascribing, they're giving to David more than they are giving to me. Saul's ultimate insult in this statement is that David is being named in the same sentence that he is being named in. So it has nothing to do with the numbers. It has everything to do with who's getting credit in the moment. And I've said multiple times, Saul is an insecure man. And you watch him not submit his insecurity to the Lord and let the Lord be his strength in all of what he knows to be where he is off and incapable and what other people think about him. But Saul, again, he lives in his his insecurity and he responds to life's circumstances through his insecurity. So here it's, he's listening to David's name being sung at the same time his name is being sung. He knows that the kingdom has been removed from him. And repetitiously in this passage, what does it say that Saul knows? Saul knows that Yahweh, his creator, his anointer, the God of the nation of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, he knows that God is with this David. And that brings about fear. He's afraid of what he's going to lose. He's afraid of good things being said about other people that are subordinate to him. So you watch his insecurity and his insanity grow. So in chapter 16, we are told that Saul loved David greatly because Saul was getting a benefit. Now Saul, now David is taking away from Saul in his perception. So in this chapter, we have four times we are told that Saul attempts to kill David. We have this scene immediately after all that's going on. He's taking David to himself. Saul is finding himself in agitation from the evil and bad spirit that the Lord has sent into his life. And Saul is listening to the spirit. The text says that he's prophesying. Now, every other time this Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it's prophesying is prophesying. It's a supernatural spiritual gift given by God to a man, to a woman, to speak God's words. The only exception to the word is in 1 Kings 18 when the priests of Baal are prophesying all day. They're, they're raving, they're mad, they're jumping before their idols. So a lot of the commentators have a problem with saying that here's this distressing and evil spirit that the Lord has sent into Saul's life, and he's prophesying. He's speaking supernatural things. Some want to say that he's raving, he's mad, it's intelligible. It's not what the text tells us. Later on, we're going to see Saul once again prophesying amongst the prophets. And this is, this is what I really want to press into this morning. Saul is, at this point in history, God's anointed authority in the nation of Israel. Does that make you uncomfortable, yes or no? It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it at all. I want Jesus as the only authority, right? Because he's perfect and he's sinless, and he's holy, and he's kind, and he's compassionate. He has all authority. He has all power. He's right. He's right. He's everything that we want. He's just. Saul is the image of everything that is unjust, unrighteous, mad. So why did God appoint Saul to be king, knowing that David was the man? There's a variety of reasons to press into, but for the next multiple chapters, the main idea that we're going to to press into in regards to why Saul was king is because that is the man that God needed to use to make David be the man that God needed him to be. So think about this for a moment, and I have, I've got a great book, and we're going to read a few chapters out of this book. You should praise the Lord that they're short chapters. Um, I just bought 20 of these this morning. Guys, we're probably going to go through this in the men's breakfast coming up. This is called A Tale of Three Kings. It's a study in brokenness. It focuses in on Saul's character, 
and David's character and David's relationship to Saul as an authority. And then he focuses on, later on in David's life, Absalom and David and David's relationship with somebody who is his inferior and what Absalom was trying to do in stealing the kingdom from David. This is a fabulous read, but in regards to the spears that Saul, a man that God put as authority in David's life, is attempting to kill David, and we watch David's response. Listen to this, because I can't say this any better myself. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate. Very, very few indeed. God has this school because he does not have broken men. Instead, he has several other types of men. He has men who claim to be God's authority and aren't, men who claim to be broken and aren't, and men who are God's authority but who are mad and unbroken. And he has, regretfully, a spectroscopic, I don't know what that word means, mixture of everything in between. All of these he has in abundance, but broken men hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all who are in this school must suffer pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out the pain. David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. As the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. He knew that God had placed him in the king's palace under true authority. The authority of King Saul, true? Yes, God's chosen authority, chosen for David. Unbroken authority, yes, but divine in ordination nonetheless. Yes, that is possible. David drew in his breath, placed himself under his mad king, and moved farther down the path of his earthly hell. David had a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Does it not seem odd to you that David did not know the answer to this question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. Why? You pick up the spear and you throw it right back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it right out of the wall and throw it back. Absolutely everyone else does it, you can be sure. And in doing this small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. You are courageous. You stand for the right. You boldly stand against the wrong. You are tough and can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of the faith, keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these attributes then combine to prove that you also, obviously, are a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There is also a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you will be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm. And most assuredly, by then, quite mad. Unlike anyone else in spear-throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spears back at him, nor did he make any spears of his own and throw them. Something was different about David. All he did was dodge. What can a man, especially a young man, do when the king decides to use him for target practice? What if the young man decides not to return the compliment? First of all, he must pretend he cannot see spears, even when they are coming straight at him. Secondly, he must also learn to duck very quickly. Lastly, he must pretend nothing at all happened. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear, he turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. 
Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art of spear throwing. Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you even when they pierce your heart. Look at David. Look at, look at the character that he is imaging for us. Look at Christ in the Gospels. What authorities threw spears at Jesus? Herod, at his birth, before the Son of God, had even the ability to do anything against King Herod. Herod was already throwing spears at him, murdering innocent children in an attempt to murder Christ. All throughout Jesus' public ministry, we watch the elders, the leaders, the priests, the scribes, those who ought to know better, those in political leadership, those in synagogue and community leadership, those small and those great, continually throwing spears at Christ. What did Jesus do? As he's pinned to the cross by three nails, spear-like nails, what does Jesus say? As he's being scorned, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, after his brutal flagellation, crucified on the cross, what words pour out of the mouth of our Savior? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. David, in his relationship with Saul, what is he doing? He's committed to God. He knows the anointing that has been poured out upon him. He's learning his relationship with the Spirit of God in his life. He knows that he's been anointed king. He knows that he's the, the successor to Saul. Would not David be just in taking the spear the first time it was hurled at him and putting Saul's head at the point of it. Yes or no? You think he could have been justified seizing the kingdom for himself? If he did, 20 years down the road, he would have been Saul II. He would not have been David, the great king of the Old Testament, where we are told future kings after him, they either did right in the sight of the Lord according to their father David, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord according to another king such as Jeroboam. David could have been very easily and justifiably responded in his own way, in his pain, in his hurt, and thrown the spear right back at Saul and, and pierced him through. This book that I just read through, it's dealing, the reason why this book was written was dealing with abusive and authoritative pastors in Christian churches in America who have thrown spears in their leadership as Saul or as Absalom in the examples that are provided. How many of you have been hurt by Christian leadership? I have been. Who's, I'm serious. Who has been hurt by a Christian leader? That's it? Those aren't very, very many hands. How many of you in your interactions with me have a hard time even receiving from me or you put a filter over my life in regards to how another pastor has treated you. I hear that all the time. I can tell you right now, I'm not like other guys. I feel really strange um, because I didn't learn abusive, bombastic, pastoral, weird leadership. I learned servanthood. I learned how to be a bondservant. 
from the very beginning of being a believer, I learned I was, I've been trained right by many people, those I know and those I don't, what true submission to Christ looks like and what service to other people looks like. I know that it's not about me. I know that I'm not to be insecure in all my areas of weakness and lack. I know that I get spears thrown at me all the time, and I have to be okay with it. I just dodge. Pretend like the spears aren't there. Lord, I have my shield of faith. You can throw spears, but what's my job in the role that the Lord has called me to? Am I supposed to throw spears at you? Am I supposed to force you to submit, put you in a headlock, and, and get you to follow Jesus the way that I tell you to follow Jesus? And if you don't, you're going to get excommunicated. I don't even know if you're saved. How many, how many leaders in the body of Christ take that kind of attitude? That's after the heart and order of King Saul, not after the heart and order of King David. And David, I'll let you pick up the other nuggets in this passage because we're going to watch David for the next 20 years of his life in his earthly hell. And we're going to watch him sing to God. We're going to watch him pour out his heart to God. We're going to watch him cry. We're going to watch him ask the questions why and what is going on. But we will continually watch him be committed to his creator in all of his life, except this one great moment in, in Bathsheba and Uriah that will hit when we hit it. But I want you to turn to the end of John. So John chapter 21, Gospel of John. We're going to pick up on the idea of this word for love. You can look at Jonathan and David's love for Yahweh. You can even look at it in Saul's love for himself and decisions that he made that God gave him all the days of his life, space to repent and space to turn. The scene at the end of John 21 in verse 14, they're on the shore of Galilee. Verse 14 says that this is the third time that Jesus has shown himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they have this fish breakfast there on the shores of Galilee. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jodah, do you love me more than these? And when they, the these, I don't know if he's talking about the fish. I don't know if he's talking about the disciples. But it's just sitting the question, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than this stuff? Are you committed to that stuff? Are you committed to yourself? Are you committed to me? Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. How is Peter to feed the followers of Jesus Christ? Word of God only. This is your source of nourishment that I am told as a pastor to feed his lambs, not mine. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, there's some, there's some different things that you can pick out in the, the Greek and the words for love that are valid ideas. But the main thing is Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know. He, he was cursing in his denial that he knew Jesus after Jesus had been resurrected, after Jesus had been arrested. That third time, because Jesus told Peter that what was going to happen, that you will deny me, and not so, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. These words come out of his mouth. The cock crows, Peter hears it, he remembers Jesus' words, and it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. He was broken, he was crushed. 
He'd been through a school of training already with his Lord and with his Savior. And this is this moment. We have another account where Jesus had a one-on-one private meeting with Peter that we don't know anything about. But here's a public one that we do know about where Jesus is restoring him three times. Those three times of denial, he gives them the opportunity to confess them three times. I know that you love me, Peter. And here's my assignment for you. But your assignment is not easy. Jesus says to Peter, 2118, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, future, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he has spoken this, he said to him, follow me. The attraction's still there. The commitment's still there. The love is still there. Jesus just told Peter, you're going to be crucified. Is that Peter's best life now? I'm serious. Look, Peter, you go, you go sit in his letters and he talks about the suffering of Christ. Do you think Peter suffered to follow Jesus in his life context after Jesus ascended to heaven? Yes or no? Church history tells us that Peter watched his wife be brutally murdered in crucifixion before he denied to be crucified like Jesus because he was unworthy, so they crucified Peter upside down. That's what church history tells us. Until the very end, he was committed to the one that he knew was his savior, the one he knew was his king. We're going to watch David image that heart all the days of his life. We're going to watch David humbly submit himself to his creator, to Yahweh, as Saul hunts him. Until the day of Saul's death, David is a hunted man. He is a sad man and a sorrowful man and a man in pain, a man who is being crushed in God's school. And he submitted to it. Do you want to follow Jesus now? How many of you have had a crushing that came into your life sourced by God? I have. Did you like it? Did you cry? Did you cry out to God? Tell me, brother and sister, those of you who have come out the other end of that crushing, Are you a better man and woman for the Lord today than you were before that event? Yes or no? I know I am. I don't don't pray for that for my life (laughs) at all. In the midst of it, I tell you, I feel like that toddler crying out to God for the removal of that, that pain. But then I look at the life of Peter. Till he drew his last breath, he was being broken and crushed. And God showed himself to be faithful and worthy. His provider, his protector. Even as he watched his wife have her life in this body be extinguished, he knew that she had just opened her eyes into the eyes of her Savior. The drive of David's image for us And Jonathan's image for us is this whole idea of being committed to God, regardless of what the circumstance looks like. Trusting in who he has said that he is and who he has declared himself to be. Ultimately, we get to sit in the testimony that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. We're sitting in the testimony that that event, that breakfast occasion on the Sea of Galilee is not just some mythological event. Peter gave his life testifying that I had this meeting with Jesus. And he told me to 
to feed his sheep all the days of my life. And he told me in what way that I was going to die. And I deemed him worthy in that moment. And I deemed him worthy to not, to not even die in the fashion in which he died in. It was Peter's heart and his suffering for Christ. So as we heart and his suffering for Christ. So as we, worship team, come on up. As we press into just, how do, you, how do you respond to the Lord? How do you respond to authority that he's placed into your life that does not image Jesus for you, but images Saul, images Pharaoh, images Nebuchadnezzar, you go on down through the list of these other rulers that were divinely appointed by God. Sit in your own context, in our context in America, current global context, and those who have been appointed to authority. Do you trust your creator? Do you trust him with your health? Do you trust him when the spears that are thrown at you, they're coming from somebody who should love you? They're coming from your spouse. They're coming from your children. They're coming from a friend that used to be like a Jonathan to you. He used to love you. But now all they're doing is trying to destroy you. Because they feel like you're taking something from them. You make them fearful. This is why it's, again, just responding to the Lord. Lord, you know how all of us process through the the pains and spears in life, Lord. You know how often we want to be like Saul and just pick up that spear, that rock, and kill him. Lord, we know that that's not your heart. I'm thankful. I'm very thankful for how you've preserved the testimony of David's life for us. We have a long road to, to travel with him, Lord, and may you teach each one of us the lessons that we need to learn in our relationship with you individually and as a congregation through the life of David and all of his interactions. Lord, where there is the spirit of Saul within each of us, We're asking, Lord, that that attitude would be removed, executed out of our lives. But we'll trust in your process. We'll trust in your plan and your will, Lord. We submit to you. You're worthy. You have demonstrated yourself to be faithful in my life in innumerable ways. And I'm crushed, Lord, any time I am out of step with you. But Lord, I praise you for the testimony out of Psalm 51, out of 1 John, out of the words of the mouth of your son. That there is freedom, there is liberty, there is cleansing, there is truth, there is power in your highly esteemed and exalted son. Jesus, we trust in your sacrifice for the payment of our sins where we have missed. We trust in your resurrection for that gift of life now and for all eternity. We constantly turn into you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.